0: Hello and welcome to the last Fraser of Allendor podcast of 2020. What we thought might be uh, interesting to do today is to look back over the year, um, a year like no other, <laughs> and see what we were saying at different points in the year and how our thinking has evolved and changed um, and what indeed is stayed the same. So, we've put lots of podcasts and uh, articles and we've done lots of webinars um, and they're all all can be found on our website so we're going to go through uh, January to December and look at some of our um, top picks for each of those months and look at what we were saying um, and you know give our thoughts on where we are now and uh, what this all means for 2021. So I'm joined uh, by my colleague Mary Spauge and I I actually only joined the Institute in in late February so um, I have to hand over to Mary for the first two months so uh hi Mary um what were we saying at the start of the year?
1: <laughs> yeah well it's really it's really quite funny to look back at the sorts of things we were covering in January and February which were yeah the start of a year like more normal year um but the the article which I thought was uh, most poignant in terms of uh, what we were thinking about we we kind of dominate the discourse over the course of the year was um, a, a referendum in 2020. So, we had done an article um, in, in early January on um, the fact that the First Minister had been pushing for a referendum before the end of 2020 um, and whether the Scottish Government would be kind of ready to present the economic case. So we were sort of talking about that many of the the economic kind of battlegrounds that were um, featured in the 2014 referendum would be kind of similar in any rerun whenever that sort of occurs but that the context of this referendum is is very different so one of the things that is obviously very different is that um the the background the backdrop to um any referendum is, is completely different given the Brexit process. So it was that kind of choice then about, you know, between a kind of stable, steady-as-she-goes in the Union versus a sort of the more unknown quantity of, of independence. Whereas, kind of, no matter what the Scottish people choose, um, you know, there's, there is quite an uncertain outlook in terms of what's going to happen to the UK after Brexit. Um, also, perhaps voters would be a bit more concerned about large-scale structural change, given the sort of um, the sort of turmoil that's happened around Brexit and the negotiation process. Perhaps they'd be more sceptical about what might actually happen through a negotiation, rather than the promises that were made by politicians in the run-up to a referendum. Um, and finally, and maybe most significantly, that um, a big sort of sell of the case in 2014 was continuity. You know, a lot of the economic institutions would remain the same and we'd retain the pound, whereas obviously a lot of those things will have to change. um, And we would be in the EU, of course, (laughs) whereas now a lot of those things would have to change. So those were the sorts of things we were pointing out.
0: I think one of the most fascinating things about that article is that the last line of it is um, 2020 promises to be a fascinating year. (laughs) Little did we know.
1: I know absolutely I mean we really we wanted to set that out at the beginning of the year because we really thought this would dominate the discourse and of course it is an issue and it is still a big issue Um, and it has been brought up repeatedly particularly because of the polls and and that sort of thing during the last um, nine months or so but yeah um, it was just so interesting how um, (laughs) we we, we thought this would totally dominate the discourse and of course it didn't quite turn out like that. (laughs) So, um, moving on to to February then, and um, we had done things in February, there's a couple of things to mention, like our business monitor came out, and that was the first one after the general election, and there was a big increase in optimism in businesses, this was at the start of February, the 6th of February we published that, Um, but also um, in February, of course, there was the Scottish budget, and it feels like a hundred years ago, um, and will be kind of remembered a wee bit because of the kind of scandal around Derek Mackay and of course Kate Forbes had to step in and present the budget kind of at the last minute and subsequently became promoted to the finance secretary role. Um, But at that point the outlook you know sort of was fairly healthy for this for the Scottish budget because of uh, the increases in UK government spending that had been announced kind of through the the general election process and the large increases in infrastructure spending for example. Um, There was a discussion, of course, of the the fact that the Scottish Government were using their borrowing powers to cover um, income tax reconciliations due to forecast error. Um, And also, um, we had a discussion in that article about the tax differential that exists between Scottish and UK taxpayers. One of the things I thought was most interesting, um, just looking back and and thinking about the the budgets to come, um, was that this had been branded as a kind of wellbeing budget. but I think that it's fair to say that there's widespread cynicism um, whether it was anything of the kind. There was a lot of references to wellbeing in the do- in the document, but um, it was hard for certainly any of us to see how it was kind of different and, and what actually made it a wellbeing budget, to be honest. So yeah, so that was February. And then obviously um, we, we move into to March um, when a lot of different things changed. There was obviously the UK budget, where there was a lot of announcements um, about support given the um, the looming crisis of, of the pandemic that was kind of coming down the road. But I don't think any of us imagined at the beginning of March, the severity of the restrictions that might be imposed upon us. Mm.
0: No, what I if- remember being sat around the sat around in, in the office watching the UK budget and, and that's the first inkling about it, but not really having any sense of what was coming the only thing we, we did very early on was realize we couldn't hold it our normal budget event and that we did our first podcast in March um to kind of you know we wanted to be able to talk about it, but we realised even this was even before any restrictions had been brought in to gather, um, lots of people in a room probably wasn't a good idea. So we, it, we were early adapters to that.
1: Absolutely. And um, this is our pod- number 37 in terms of podcast this year. So that's many we've done since then. Um, but um, one of the, the funnier articles looking back on March was actually... Um, uh, our, our article about the, the proposals or the proposals for feasibility studies into a, a, a link between Scotland and Northern Ireland, you know, this proposed bridge or tunnel. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you, you want a wee bit of a laugh that that was being considered at that point, <laughs> that was published in early March before all of this kicked off properly. But um, Emma, why don't you tell us which article you thought um, was, was most uh, interesting in our March publications?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I've chosen an article we published towards um, the end of March, which um, was titled, This Isn't a V-Shaped Recession. Um, and it was early on in the very kind of early days, um, I would say mid-March, it, it didn't take long for us to, to realise it wasn't the case, but in sort of mid-March, there was this kind of feeling that maybe this w- was going to be really temporary and just this short, short, sharp hit. Um, I guess partly we've seen some um, what had happened in in china where they had had um, very strict lockdown but then things seemed to be able to open up um but that that wasn't um you know wasn't to be and by late march we were realizing that um this wasn't a temporary blip um and that this was going to be um severe and and long lasting um and it's interesting to look at what some of the things we said um about why that was the case um early sight of the word unprecedented in terms of the scale of the shutdown of the economy. We've used that word um, many times. Um, and then obviously we then looked into, you know, this wasn't just affecting one part of the world, it was a global issue. Um, and then some of the more technical points in terms of dislocation to supply chains. Um, and then and then we started to talk about how, um, how this was actually in terms of different of previous recessions that had been, you know, caused by sort of a fact that happening um, elsewhere and affecting us, this was this wasn't an, uh, an issue that was affecting people directly, and the restrictions were focused on people directly. So um, yes, the economy obviously mattered and you know was a big part of this, but it it became very clear early on to us that um, it was the impact on 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 people and households that, that was kind of um, showing that that kind that. Of, a really big warning light shining very early on about how this is going to affect um, household finances. Um, and I, just at the end of the article, we, we did, we did um, think about, you know, so how long is this going to last? And, um, you know, we said at the very least, it will be six months, maybe even a year. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, that was quite optimistic. Um, but, but the one thing we also pointed out was that, you know, when we do get to the recession, and, and I think we're still you know, we're not obviously out of the woods yet. But how um, the economy will recover um, will depend on on the decisions made by government then. And I think that's quite interesting that we've heard some kind of um, talk about, you know, will austerity come back and um, will there need to be a big tightening of the finances? Quite a lot of it sort of almost misinformation about actually how government finances operate at the UK level and, you know, we are able to borrow at very low rates at the moment and there isn't that urgency to kind of, you know, sort things, sort out, sort out, um, you know, sort out the bill quickly. Um, so I think that's quite interesting and we need to, to keep hold of that actually the government has done a lot during the recession. Um, and the crisis Um, but what they do after is probably just as important in terms of of how we come out of of the other end of this so i mean that was obviously march was a really um it was a month of huge upheaval for for us as a team and we were all working from home very suddenly um and you know we but we were very keen to just keep kind of thinking and writing and, and talking to each other to try and work out you know if we could say anything helpful about about the impact of of the crisis um, on the economy and on people's lives and and that brings us to to April where we did try to do just that and and had a go at um, looking at the scale of the impact on the economy based on the restrictions that had come into place. Um, so what did we say about that, Mary?
1: yeah so we tried to look at um uh, our understanding of um you know the different sectors of the economy and how large they are um and how they've kind of grown in the past um coupled with um our knowledge about the likely scale of shutdown and that was based on various intelligence we gather from business organizations some leading indicators and also our um, our Scottish Business Monitor, which was also published that month. And that was interesting because it was really the first survey of Scottish businesses that tried to capture what the emerging effect might be. And unsurprisingly, when that was published slightly later in April, it was pretty gloomy um, in terms of the outlook, um, which is not, not sort of unexpected. So we were really looking at what the short-term impact was and we were trying to estimate if this sort of scale of restriction that we're under, so this was in the 7th of April we published this, so it was early April, if that sort of level of restriction continued for three months, say, till the end of May-ish, then, you know, what might the contraction be in the economy, Um, and Overall, um, I don't think we did too badly in terms of uh, estimating what the impact might be. We had estimated overall in GDP that the impact might be around 20 to 25% contraction. And actually, in the end, it was around a 24% contraction. Um, uh, and in terms of sectors, um, we slightly overestimated the potential contraction in the kind of production sectors and underestimated it in services. But overall, we got the scale of the, the likely contraction pretty much spot on. But, you know, these numbers are eye-watering. The fact it was 20, you know, it was almost a quarter uh, of contraction in the, in the economy was, was absolutely, as you say, unprecedented. We keep using that word. Um, but that was us kind of trying to, to understand how this might manifest in the data, one thing we were keen to discuss as well is the fact that this might not always appear in the measured statistics quite as you would expect. Um, and there's a couple of things around that, you know, things like there's quite lagged measurements in some sectors, particularly in the public sector. So, one thing um, I wouldn't be surprised to see is that our understanding about exactly what happened during that period of lockdown, and of course, periods of restrictions that we have continued to live under might be um, subject to quite a lot of revision uh, in future years. So we might be talking about exactly how it impacted on the economy um, during this period for some time to come, as well as obviously looking forward to how we might recover from from this, um, the, the pandemic uh, in the future. So that takes us um, into May, of course. Um, and um, we obviously started looking ahead I suppose a bit more um, as um, we were talking, government were talking about how and when they could lift some restrictions which didn't happen quite yet but started to happen in in June but there was a lot of discussion then about how long the lockdown would go on so we started obviously speculating about that and how things might be unwound and in what way Um, so do you want to just tell us Emma about an article we wrote about that?
0: Yeah so when um, when it started to be the case that uh, I think it happened slightly earlier in England that non-essential businesses started to be reopened, um, and there was a lot of talk about how this would happen um, in different parts of the country, what was the right thing to do. Um, so obviously, still a lot of unknowns, and actually, I remember at the time a lot of the you know headlines seemed to be taken up by questions over when garden centers were going to reopen which didn't really feel like you know the most significant issue but of course very important to some people Um, so we we wrote an article um that sort of reflected on some of this um and and again focused on you know what needed to happen in, in in order to kind of minimize um the economic and financial harm um that had been caused and could still be caused um in the unwinding and and part of this was kind of reflecting on the fact that very early on there was lots of talk about you know building back better and um, we heard that phrase a lot but it always seemed to be sometime in the future it was like oh, after the crisis we will you know do things differently and um it will be a better a, you know a better economy a better society but actually you know that that shouldn't have been pushed into the future, how decisions were being made at the time in terms of the unwinding um, were of critical importance um, in that regard in terms of ensuring that um, certain groups weren't left behind and and disproportionately affected. Um, And we had a number of kind of of podcasts and and it was brought up a lot of our webinars about which groups are going to be disproportionately impacted. and actually the truth is we don't know for sure i mean it comes back to what you you're saying Mary, about you know there will be revisions and statistics to, to you know the things that that could be measured in some way at the time and economic activity but actually the statistics we have in terms of the labor market and household incomes um so i either been kind of obscured a bit so with the labor market stats it's hard and um, because of the furlough scheme to actually understand you know what what the impact has been on on demand for for jobs, and to what extent different groups of people have, have left the labour market completely. Um, groups who are most worried about their um, remain kind of parents who were ta- having to take on um, homeschooling and a lot more childcare, and um, and people who had uh, underlying health conditions who may have had to if shield to be may have had to shield um, for some time. But we won't actually know for sure any of this probably for some time, I mean, the household income statistics for that period won't be available. I think it will be 2022 when we'll actually get that picture of, of what happened to household incomes through that time. Um, so it, it's um, it, there's a, still a lot of reasons to, to 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 think that actually these groups will have been most affected and they didn't feel that there was a lot of targeted support for them, there was a lot of blanket support out there in terms of the furlough scheme. Um, and, and over kind of um, blanket policies, but to what extent was that kind of building back narrative actually um, focusing in place when things started to restart? So uh, our article is called Restart As You uh, Mean To Go On. Um, and the extent to which that will have caused scarring and will have really long-term implications for, for particular groups of the population. Um, unfortunately, we, we will continue to see that for years ahead if that has been the case. So. Um, Yeah, I think that will continue to be part of of the debate, and um, yeah, building back better may still happen. (laughs) But um, um, I guess you're looking for evidence of of where that has been the case um, and thought about clearly through the rest of the crisis, and there hasn't seemed to have been that focus on um, getting support to necessarily. To those disadvantaged groups, it just has been we need to get support at the door quickly, and there is that trade-off between um, timeliness and um, and the ability to target. Um, so yeah, whether or not it could have been done a different way, we'll probably never know. The counterfactual, um, you know, is is isn't possible to see, and yeah, clearly was a very difficult time for government and civil servants to try and actually understand and do anything. So. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. A feature of this crisis has just been how quickly things have been moving and any of us have experienced quite a a policy environment and how it's been shifting quite like this year.
0: Absolutely. And it it does go to show how quickly government can move. I think that has been quite a surprise to some people. I mean, yes, there have been trade-offs, but things have happened that you would never expect could have happened um, either from an ideological point of view with, with the conservative party down south or just from that kind of you know um, speed um, of, of things happening like to set up a, the coronavirus job intervention scheme in the time it was taken to do so it was pretty incredible um, so I think that has told us that you know where there's where there's a will and um, these things can happen uh, quite quickly, so that will be interesting to see um, how that plays out in future years. Um, but I mean, one um, continual theme that we've talked about throughout the year, because it is so important, is is the um, the impact on the, on the budget. And there have been huge changes <laughs> and a huge amount of additional money coming through um, to Scotland in order to um, you know, roll out some of, some of the support schemes. Um, so we we talked about that in June, um, just to kind of have a look ahead. Um, Mary, do you want to take us through some of what was talked about then?
1: Yeah, so yeah, we have picked this article by our colleague David Iser, um, which looked at um, how the, the budget had evolved um, and obviously the outlook for the budget for, you know, the current year had changed massively since the budget was published um you know in in sort of february so absolutely enormous changes since it had been published and um, there's also obviously a lot of um higher spending that there, than there would have been planned for in scotland there, there would likely be lower tax take um but all of that's offset by um the the amount of money that was being um was being um, given to the Scottish government by the UK government, given the spending commitments that were being made um, UK wide. So um, absolutely massive changes, um, like we've never seen in a year in terms of the Scottish budget. And this was only in June. And one of the features of this um, and a number of articles that we've published over the course of the year has been just how fast this is moving. And so at any point in time, we we obviously have the information that we have. (laughs) And we, you know, we're trying to make as much um, uh, make it as clear as we can about our current understanding of the position. But it has been so fast moving that it's not been easy, I don't think, for anyone to understand exactly what the position is. Um, and um, this has sort of culminated in a series of articles over the year, um, uh, which uh, has sort of finished with our budget report, which we published alongside our economic commentary um, on, on, on Tuesday, the 15th of December. One of the features of this um, one of the really interesting features of this article that we published in, in, in late June was that um, it was after the Scottish Parliament had passed um, a resolution to ask for greater fiscal flexibilities. And this has been a source of uh, the discourse between the UK and Scottish governments since um, since, uh, you know, since June, um, that there should be greater uh, flexibilities. Um, this isn't all about more borrowing powers, some of it's about you know whether um, capital can be used for resource spending, some of it's about um, whether some reconciliation to the budget could be delayed, so there was a number of asks for fiscal flexibilities as well as of course um, some increased borrowing powers. Um, that generally hasn't hasn't been sort of uh, <laughs> responded to by the UK government, um, although there are some, um, some fiscal flexibilities that they have put in place that we can discuss in one of our later articles um, in November. But overall, um, the, the, the article goes into to great detail about how we know that the, the, the budget has changed over the course of the last three months. Um, and we follow up um, with a number of articles throughout the year on how things have changed. So there's, there's one <laughs> at least every couple of months, which is trying to, to figure out what has happened and w- what is the outlook like for future years. Um, unsurprisingly, what it says about future years is it's very uncertain <laughs> that, um, and that, that poses a difficulty for parties who are thinking about writing their manifestos for the Holyrood election. In, uh, in May. Now that's still true now. <laughs> um, it was true in June and it's still true. So it is a challenging environment for parties to set out what their spending plans might be. Um, other things that um, we published in June, that we were publishing an economic commentary at the end of June, um, and that was a bit of a bonanza commentary. We did lots of things around that. Um, it was sort of a week long jamboree of commentary rather than the normal day. Um, and uh, one of the most interesting things we published, I think, was um, a number of opinion pieces from um, economists in Scotland and people from uh, places like business organisations and unions and others about what they thought might happen. <laughs> Um, so that's quite an interesting collection of thoughts from, um, you know, sort of influential people and people who know the policy environment in Scotland, um, and it'll be interesting continually to go back and see what they said, there and see how much of it actually sort of came true. But throughout this um, uncertain time, um, we've been trying to, as Emma touched on earlier, um, to write as much as we can to kind of inform um, the debate and make sure that we're um, sort of packaging up the latest information um, as well as we can to see what's actually happening in the economy, um, particularly given the lags there is in official data. So we started a sort of series looking at that so we could kind of see what was going on in the economy. So you just want to see a little bit about that, Emma? And what we published in July? Yeah.
0: So yeah, we started thinking about this in in um in around July as to you know there was lots of um different um, reports available in the media that was using I guess what we term as novel data, um so data that's that's not official statistics, um and it actually may have been produced by, you know, um people that you wouldn't. Necessarily go to for statistical information, um, so that was things like looking at um, Google, and they they started to package up themselves some information on um, inf- yeah, information they had on on where people were going. So based on you know um, information from there from Google Maps, so you could start to see different trends in terms of where people was were going. So during the lockdown, there was a huge, obviously increase in people. Um, staying at home and you know and a huge drop off in in people commuting and using transport and being in their workplaces so we started to think about um sort of talking about that on a regular basis to see what was changing and we have seen some changes throughout the year in terms of you know people um going back into um onto the high street you know there was definitely some movement in August with the help out to eat out with people going into hospitality venues. Um, but yeah, still things are definitely not back to normal. So so that was one of the things we've looked at. Um, and also, um, you know, things like vacancy data, um, anything that's put out in terms of, you know, transport, what, where, you know what, what's going on with those kind of trends. One place we did go to to look at statistics um, was the ONS, who are traditionally those, the, the place you go to look for things, but they started to do um, their own survey very, very early on in the crisis, um, so it's called the Business Impacts Coronavirus Survey, or BICS for short. And that kind of went out and, and surveyed um, different companies, including um, companies that operated in Scotland, and asked them about things in terms of um, you know volume of, of of trade or what was going on with the workforce, whether they were accessing government loans or the coronavirus job retention scheme. So some really you know insightful and bits of information so a bit like a business monitor but on a much bigger scale <laughs> um so that has been really useful and again that has kind of shown us you know i don't think we'll go back to just relying on the same official data sources in the future i think there will be now much more acceptance that actually looking at more real-time information from from different sources of, of data and you know obviously having to to proceed with caution on a lot of them because they're not you know properly quality assured and they, probably not representative of the whole population um but they can give you some insights very quickly to look at how things are changing in the real world um, so i think that's been quite quite good uh, a good thing to do and we've continued to to do this now on a, a fortnightly basis looking at at um what these real-term indicators might tell us um and of course they come out far before uh, things like gdp um and give you some kind of uh, insight sort of underneath some of the official statistics on on um, on the labor market for example to see what's going on so um yeah that that's been a, a sort of turning turning point maybe for us in terms of the sources of data we've looked at to try and help inform what's going on and um in informing the recovery a big thank you to Ben Adam and Frank for all the work that they've done on that so um so moving into august and Um, attention was again turning towards the recovery and thinking um, what might happen, um, you know, part of this Build Back Better debate, but also actually um, what might the government in Scotland want to do to um, rebuild and restructure the economy in a more sustainable way going forward. And we had um, the report from the advisory group on economic recovery, um, which came out in August. And Yes. So we um, we reflected on that report. um, And so, Mary, what were our main takeaways from this?
1: So um, in August, um, we got the government's response to the advisory group on economic recovery um, report. Um, And so we wrote a brief article in early August reflecting on um, on this. Um, So. (laughs) So. I mean there was a lot of um, interesting and worthy sort of ambitions and ideas in the report, uh, obviously this is completely unprecedented situation that word again um, during the course of August we got it confirmed that there um, Scotland was in recession, not really a surprise to anyone. Um, So there was was, um, a lot of ideas around things like Fairstar Scotland and employability and the development of the jobs guarantee scheme that at that point was looking forward to furlough ending um, fairly imminently in the future, although obviously that has not panned out in quite the way that was expected at that point. One point we made was that the crisis has highlighted that many of the levers that we can turn to uh, in terms of the immediate boost to the economy lie at Westminster rather than at Holyrood. Um, so it's difficult to um, have a like urgent actions that you can take when many of the policy areas that we have control over um, in Scotland directly are sort of biased towards those that improve long term outcomes rather than ones that can can impact immediately on the economy. Um, so, as we said in the article. You know, the Scottish Government was right to sort of push the UK government on what stimulus plans were for the economic recovery and ensuring that we were getting through the economic crisis. Um, But there are things, of course, the Scottish Government can do um, to to ease the economic crisis. It's fair to say that um, we were (laughs) um, not particularly impressed that we thought it was slightly frustrating, the report. Um, it was it was a lot of high level stuff about the type of economy we hope Scotland will be, which is all well and good. But I think we struggled to pick out the kind of urgent actions that were being taken now. Um, and a lot of it seemed like a repackaging of things that had already been announced um, with very few um, novel or um, urgent ideas in it. You know, we did say that, you know, perhaps we're being unfair and um, none of this was easy. Um, but that the action plan that was published um, in August um, didn't really have these sorts of meaty actions that I think a lot of businesses, in particular, were looking for um, in order to stimulate the economy or help them through the crisis. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was what we said about that at the time. Um, obviously, the policy environment has continued to evolve very quickly. Um, and things like the furlough scheme being extended has meant that um, a lot of these, um, these, these uh, policy ambitions are, have been changed or, or maybe pushed out. But I guess we will see how much of these sorts of responses or these plans feature in the Scottish Government's budget when they announce it at the end of January, and then obviously are carried into the manifestos for the, the Holyrood election. One, one of the other things that happened during August was, of course, um, the annual GERS publication, Government Expansion and Revenue Scotland. Um, so we um, had our usual coverage of that, both the nonsense that's generated around it. Um, so we did a podcast about that um, and just an analysis of the figures. Um, but of course, they continue to gather huge amounts of attention. Um, so we always like to make sure we comment on those to reduce as much as we can the chance that they're misinterpreted or misused. <laughs> So so that was August. And then moving into September, um, we've chosen a piece that we wrote about um, what the shape of the recovery might be to come. So Emma's already mentioned um, that we said in March that we didn't think a V-shaped recession, i.e. an immediate or very quick bounce back, was likely. Um, But that... um, you know what? So what would that that shape be? And there was lots of different letters used to describe these, and lots of different weird um, <laughs> shapes used to talk about what the sort of shape of the recession might be. And and this article was called "Not Okay: The Shape of the Recovery to Come." And we've actually um, sort of seen this bear out in reality in the data. Um, and we've talked a lot um, since then about a K-shaped recovery. And the essence of this is that different sectors and different groups of the population will experience the recovery in very different ways. And we've seen a number of of sectors who, even if they were severely locked down, such as construction and manufacturing, adapt very well to the new procedures they've had to put in place because of COVID to operate in a COVID safe way and are actually doing pretty well. Um, They're doing okay throughout the crisis now um, at this point. Um, but other sectors such as hospitality being absolutely clobbered and they're still not able to operate in any meaningful way and we know that that's likely to continue for some time. That in turn means that different areas of the country and different areas of, in different bits of the population, such as young people, might be harder hit throughout the this uh, crisis and recovery. Um, so our article there just goes through the different sectors that might be impacted differently and the different types of households. And as I said, um, it does seem like this is bearing out in practice, um, and is likely to be a feature, and will need to be a feature of government's response to this. We need to realise the fact that this is going to impact different sectors and different parts of the population differently, and the policy spot response needs to kind of recognise that um, and and make sure it can sort of help different groups of the population. So, um, so that was September, and then. During September, we also launched a new project um, where where we're looking at the the prospects for people with learning disabilities in Scotland. And this was launched initially in September um, with an article called Scotland's Invisible People. And we published um, another article in October about how the pandemic had affected um, these people. So Emma, why don't you talk us through that?
0: yeah well i mean it follows on nicely from what you're saying about the the you know the case shaped recession because um this group of people um have very much been kind of you know really heavily affected by um the fallout from the pandemic and there's a lot of concern that they're that they're not going to be um, properly considered um as priorities in in terms of support for the recovery um so yeah so th- this was part of this this long program of work, we've now got ongoing at at the Fraser, um, looking at mainly adults with learning disabilities and and those with additional support needs um, and kind of how, what opportunities are there for them in in society in Scotland and what challenges and barriers that they face. Um, And I think one of of the most stark things whenever you look um, at this group of people is that their um, health outcomes are so much poorer than the rest of the population they have much lower life expectancy um, and um, a lot of that's um, from preventable illnesses as well um, and respiratory illness is something which affects um, many of them so the direct health impact of, of COVID is particularly um, worrying for this group of people and we don't actually have statistics in Scotland yet on this which which is another issue in its own right but in uh, in England the the, the death rate from COVID-19 has been higher amongst um, this, this population, um, which is, you know, a horrific thing to still, you know, to, to happen in this day and age. Um, so in terms of um, in Scotland, thinking about what we were most concerned about from talking to people um, with learning disabilities is that whilst they were already feeling it in a lot of ways like they they weren't particularly um, a valued or visible part of of society that got worse during COVID-19 because um, because of the pressures that um, social care was under um, and you know, local government was under more generally in terms of reprioritizing resources. That they often um, lost a lot of the support that they relied on to to enable them to live either independent or semi-independent lives. And and that you know, I think we've all been impacted obviously by by COVID. But the extent to which you you know people have completely lost their independence as a result of it, I think that is it's quite an extreme um, situation for people to be in. Um, So, so that's, we really kind of just wanted to uh, shine a light on that and, you know, talk a lot about inequalities in Scotland, but um, sometimes we don't properly understand what that actually means for people um, who are facing those inequalities and kind of the scale of some of the issues that they face. And that's what this project we've been doing has, has really tried to do to, to just make it as clear as we can um, to, to anyone who <laughs> who wants to listen or should listen, um, you know, some of the impacts, the unintended consequences, I suppose, of some of, of what happened um, to um, government services during the pandemic. Um, and we've still got no resolution really as to what might happen going forward. Um, there's quite a lot of concern that maybe. Um, it will be thought that people have coped through um, with COVID by, say, like moving back in with family members or something. And, and as such, they will then say, oh, well, they don't need any more support. Then they can, they can, they can cope fine. But actually, they, it, you know, it's that point where they're not being um, kind of given the choice to live the life as, as, they, as they want to and to live life independently. So um, something we'll be thinking and looking at during the next six months in the run up to the Scottish elections as well. Um so so that's been a really great project to work on and and obviously it, it's not just about covid it's also about how um you know in general there are support and opportunities available but we'll continue looking at that over the next um uh, 6 to 9 months and and we're moving into the end of the year now and um, our you know annual offering is always, um, although it's happened at multiple points this year, is um, a deep dive look at the Scottish budget. Um, We normally get the Scottish budget uh, published in in December um, following a UK budget um, that usually happens a month or so before that. That didn't happen last year and nor has it happened this year. So um, we're looking at a budget in January this year, but we still um, have taken some time in November and December to look at the Scottish budget and to try and make sense of some of what's uh, going on there. So we had an update in November. So Mary, do you want to talk us through that?
1: Yeah, so what this update was trying to do, it was trying to set the scene um, prior to the, the spending review announcements by Rishi Sunak on the 25th of November. Essentially, this is what we know so far about um, the additional consequentials that have been generated for the Scottish budget due to spending by, by the UK government in England. Um, and this is how they've been spent as far as we can tell um it is worth saying this goes into a lot of detail about those those consequentials which are 8.2 billion pounds absolutely massive amounts of money if you consider that the budget is you know, um sort of 30 billion it's a massive uplift uh, in terms of the spending um and it's worth saying that there has been an update published by the scottish government since we published this obviously there's been the spending review on the 25th of november and then there was was an update published by the Scottish Government uh, in early December. So we've reflected that in our, our budget report that we published alongside the commentary on the 15th of December. So there has been an update to this. But this is all of the detail of what we knew at that point, um, And also had to look forward to, um, to um, the, the spending review. Again, it talks about um, the case for fiscal flexibilities. Um, one of the um, more novel things that has, that has happened by the, the, the Treasury did was um, introduce the concept of funding guarantees, so that this, this would be the level of funding that would be guaranteed rather than it just being generated by consequential spending. Um, you know, that's, that is a significant concession um, and hasn't really got as much attention as, as it maybe should have. Um, and it does remove one of the main concerns raised by the Scottish Government in the early part of the pandemic. Um, so, you know, saying that the Treasury being been completely insensitive to the funding needs of devolved governments is maybe not completely fair because this was a, a significant concession and move forward. Um, but obviously, um, it doesn't remove the, the risk, I suppose, that funding needs might be higher or different in different parts of the country, for example, in, in one of the devolved nations, than is generated through consequential funding. But that remains a problem in terms of the the design of the Barnett formula and the way that funding works in the UK. And it'll be interesting to see if there's further discussion about that in the years to come, um, which has kind of been highlighted by by the pandemic and the amount of money that's come through consequential funding. So so that was followed up, as I said, by by the, the update in December, which hopefully is a fairly comprehensive a review of how the budget has evolved over the year and sets the scene for the the budget in in January uh, at the end of January that the Scottish government are, are going to set um so um that takes us to the, the last month of the year that we're in now thank goodness um, <laughs> and uh, as I've mentioned already obviously we published a lot of stuff around our commentary and um, but um, Emma, you wanted to pick an article which was of uh, significant uh, media attention um, and about a, a big announcement that was made by the First Minister.
0: Yeah, so I guess this December article I'm going to talk about sort of sets the scene probably for what the next six months or so are going to look like in Scotland, because it it was an announcement at the SNP conference or a party political um you know, announcement about um, a bonus payment to NHS care staff for um, service uh, in 2020, you know, an, absolutely, an entirely reasonable idea, many people support it, um, but it also came with a shot at the UK government, um, which kind of um, requested or or made the case that the UK government should make it tax free. Um, And as we pointed out, that was quite an unnecessary thing to be to be asking the UK government for, given that, you know, um, we have income tax um, powers in Scotland and the income tax comes to the Scottish government. And therefore, to make it tax free, all you really need to do is um, add an extra amount on to, to account for that. Um, what would be the tax income tax on it and then the Scottish government will get that back in a few years time so of course yeah it's not very neat and then you know it's not like immediately the Scottish government get that money back um, but nor does it feel like a point to um, you know to question whether or not a bonus should be paid in the first place so the bonus is good it's quite an unnecessary political distraction to be talking about um, whether the UK government should make it um, tax-free or not so I guess the reason we talked about it is because you know it, it it's one of those things where actually what what do we what is what's the key point that's being made here and is it um is it is it one that we kind of agree is, is an issue or is it one that seems to be a, a sort of more of a political point and and we did get quite a lot of um media kind of take up on the back of it because of, of, of what we said but um, it followed on from another blog we'd done earlier in the week, which talked about um, a similar announcement on a similar type of announcement that was a big giveaway in free school meals. Again, a perfectly um, rational kind of thing for a government to want to do to give universal free school meals for all children at primary school. But it was kind of um, sort of announced as a child poverty protection measure um which there were you know there are reasons to, to say universal service um such as that is good for for child poverty but it's not the most cost-effective way of doing so and the most cost-effective way of doing so is to target it and um, so you get more kind of um more children out of poverty for the amount of, your, of money you're spending um so you know there was a even at the start of december and that it was party conference so we would expect those kind of things but. kind of did give us that taster of things to come (laughs) um, for the next six months and and we are intending to do quite a lot of work on, on the election.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as Emma says, we'll be doing a lot of analysis in the run up to the election, uh, uh, sort of looking at some of the big policy issues and laying out the facts for them. Uh, And, you know, we'll also be looking at the manifestos as they're they're published to sort of see see what different parties are saying. So hopefully we can bring some uh, some light to that um, and uh, do some impartial analysis to inform debate uh, and inform all of you listeners um, about the big issues that the parties are talking about. Um, so thanks, Emma, for joining me for our kind of review of uh, of 2020. Um, it's been really interesting to look back on all of our articles and see how our uh, our thinking has evolved over the period. Um, so um, just so you know, we'll be putting all of the links to all of the articles we've been discussing in the podcast description, so you can see um, you can have a look at, back at them all um, yourself and laugh at the things we were saying in early 2020. Um, And um, also, as usual, you can subscribe to our podcast and all the the major podcast platforms. And all of our articles, of course, are available on our website for you to have a look at anytime. So I guess it's it's just um, for me to say, have a great Christmas, everyone. Um, And I hope you get some rest because we are certainly looking forward to it here at the Institute. Um, And we'll see you for our first podcast of 2021. Thanks.